It's the 23rd of June, 2015, and this is episode 224. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today, I'm joined by the gang who's all here, Adam and Andreas, and also a person who has been involved with the Bitcoin community for, you know, as long as I can remember, longer than me. I think he needs no introduction, really. He's done a lot of stuff, but I'm really glad he's here. And it's Justice Ranbeer. Hi, Justice. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Today, I wanted to bring you on the show because you've been working on a really interesting project with a couple of other people, by the way, who will also give credit for it. The project is a rating project to evaluate different Bitcoin wallets based on what level of privacy they offer to their users. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to work on this. Last summer, as the Open Bitcoin Privacy Project was getting started, we all met. There was four main people who decided that we wanted to work on improving privacy in Bitcoin. Before I got into Bitcoin, I had a background in manufacturing. Continuous improvement projects were just something you did every day. And there's a lot of different flavors to continuous improvement, but one of the things they all have in common is the idea that you can't improve what you don't measure. Any business that has any kind of continuous improvement, the first thing they do is figure out how do we measure whatever it is we want to improve. That's usually the biggest, hardest part of continuous improvement is measuring. We knew back then that we needed to find a way to measure privacy. Before this work, I'm not aware of any other effort to turn privacy into something that could be quantified. Even though everybody wants privacy and a lot of people care about it, You can't make meaningful improvements until you can really start measuring what you have. That makes a lot of sense. So obviously, to measure something, you need metrics. And those metrics are going to be based on things that you value, things that are important objectively or subjectively. So how did you sort of come up with those standards? We started with a threat model. So the question is, who are we trying to obtain privacy from? And that's not just a single answer. That's, that's context-dependent and has many different answers. Once we know who are we trying to preserve our privacy from, then we start looking at what can those entities do? How can they attack our privacy? And then finally, what could a wallet do about it? We spent several sessions developing a threat model, figuring out what are the attacks, and we, we restricted the attacks to attacks that there were known countermeasures to. The question was simply, does the wallet implement the countermeasure or not? We split our questions into three types because we looked at, we grouped them as quality, usability, and feedback. So the quality measurement means how well does the wallet implement the countermeasure. Usability means how difficult is it for a user to employ the countermeasure. Ideally, they would require no extra effort. And feedback was the idea that the wallet should encourage good privacy behavior by default. So does it either make privacy beneficial behavior the only option, or does it warn you 
when you are doing something that compromises your privacy. And so that general technique is how we developed a list of questions that we use to rate each wallet. Maybe you should mention your partners on this project. I know one of them was Christoph Atlas, who wrote the anonymous Bitcoin book. So obviously there's some experience, you know, and some credibility there in the realm of what makes a private Bitcoin wallet. Yeah, last fall when we started, it was myself and Christoph Atlas and Sam Patterson and Chris Passia. Chris, he was involved in the beginning stages, but he started working on other projects before we completed. We spent several months developing the threat model, and then when it came time to actually rate the wallets, we, we picked up a few more volunteers to help rate the wallets. Daniel Craywitz and Michael Goldstein helped with some of that. The thing I found really interesting about this project was that you really maintained very high standards. And, you know, so many times when there are ratings that are done of just kind of consumer reporting or even people who rate like politicians, you know, like political organizations, they really get under fire often because they just compromise their standards. They kind of like lower their standards to the point where somebody comes out on top and they're nearly perfect in that system that they've designed. And then some people are less than that. But really, the most striking thing that stands out about the Open Bitcoin Privacy Project is that even the best rated wallets didn't really fare so well. Right. Uh, At the very beginning, before we even developed the metrics, we decided that we didn't want to have like a rating people on a 7 through 10 on a 10 point scale, that effect that you mentioned. Because the, the ratings are designed to help drive improvements we want the a lot of upside potential. We were kind of surprised by the results. They actually came out higher than we thought. As an attempt to minimize bias, before we looked at any wallets at all, we developed criteria and we developed the weighting and finalized that before we started examining any wallets at all. And we were kind of hoping that the scores would be lower than they, than they ended up being. So a lot of the wallets surprised us. We hadn't looked at these wallets in a long time, they had actually implemented a lot more countermeasures than we thought in some cases. Yeah, I bet that was kind of interesting because everybody sort of has their own favorite wallets that they tend to use. And so in order to rate some of these wallets, you probably had to use ones that you preferred not to just to see what their features were. Yeah, definitely. I did the rating for the Bitcoin wallet, which was something I hadn't looked at, I think, since 2012 or 2013. And um, yeah, it it had made a lot of improvements since the last time I had uh, looked at it. I guess this wasn't something you could do blinded, you know, it's not like a taste test where you can sort of put on a blindfold. So how did you try to sort of minimize bias based on the branding that you would inevitably see when you use the wallet? We tried as much as possible to keep the questions to one of two forms. It was either a true-false answer, or it was counting the number of clicks to perform an action. There are a few questions where we had to be a little bit looser with the definitions because we didn't have time to uh, develop the metrics as much as we would like. But yeah, in general, it's true, false, or the number. That's how we're trying to keep it as objective as possible. Yeah. And then did you have like weighting based on certain features being more important than others, or was everything sort of given equal importance? Well, actually, I'd like to, before you get into that, Stephanie... Um, I'd, I'd like Justice to talk about what goes into in the, the scope of the uh, Open Bitcoin Wallet Privacy Report. You know, what are best practices? What is something that would score a perfect score? A perfect score would be to 
implement every countermeasure to every identified attack. There are no wallets that do that. And I, I don't believe there ever will, because over time, we're going to adapt the threat model and adapt the questions based on many new discoveries in attackers and attacks and models. The perfect score is ideally a moving goal, because the attackers are not going to stand still. They're going to keep developing their techniques, the data mining and other tactics. And so we will have to adjust our uh, rating standards as well. That makes sense. But in the context of this particular report that we're talking about, I think that there was a possibility of getting a perfect score. It seems like, you know, I'm looking at the uh, report here and it looks like the highest score that was actually achieved was 54 out of 100. Looks like two wallets received that. So, you know, you said that you were expecting it to be worse. So this is really designed as something that uh, is just supposed to be an impetus for people who are, who are developing these wallets or people who are using these wallets to apply pressure and to get them to include these things. Yeah, it's, it's intended to be an accurate measurement of how well wallets are keeping up with all the known attacks. And you know, maybe it's possible someday that we would attain a state of privacy where we've achieved perfect information security such that there's nothing for any you know, privacy attackers to get at. Uh, I'm not really optimistic about that. I think it's going to be a continual arms race. Justice, can you just give a couple of specific examples of types of attacks that you were trying to address here? Perhaps there are people listening who are just totally like unfamiliar with privacy and that there could be any kinds of attacks. One of the contexts in which we looked at a privacy attack is leaking privacy on the blockchain. And so this would mean if somebody, if an observer has a, a full copy of the blockchain and they've indexed and they've databased it, what can they learn about you that you wouldn't want them to learn? The majority of the questions were focused on that. And we had things like discourage address reuse. We also looked into some things like uh, transaction construction. Is the change output in a random position in the transaction? There were some other attacks that are not addressed by any wallets yet. Like if you were to examine a transaction, it's frequently possible to determine which output is the change based on the sizes of the inputs and outputs involved. You know, we looked at, does any wallet uh, take countermeasures such as, do they attempt to make the change output as close as possible to the size of the desired spin as an outsider and figure out what's going on? Do wallets attempt to avoid merging inputs from multiple addresses or alternatively, if they have to merge inputs from multiple addresses, do they construct the transaction so it looks like a coin join? Do we use mixing? Those, those are the kind of things we looked at in terms of privacy on the blockchain. Thanks for going into that. I think maybe we should just spend a minute to say why those things are important. When we're talking about financial privacy, uh, that's sort of a concept that's getting lost in today's uh, world and society. But we're not just talking about, you know, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. There are all kinds of reasons why you might want to be private. Do you want, for instance, your ex-spouse looking through your financial transactions, figuring out what you bought? Do you want your parents, maybe, if you're a younger person, knowing everything you bought? Do you want the government knowing everything you, you purchased? I mean, there are just so many reasons that are completely legit and totally compatible with just the basic human right of privacy uh, that we would want to be private with our finances, right? Right. 
one fact that may be underappreciated is the blockchain is forever. So when you talk about your privacy on the blockchain, you don't want to think about it in terms of what privacy do you want today. You need to think about in terms of what privacy will you ever want for the rest of your life. Because the blockchain does not change. When you're talking about staying private on the blockchain, you're talking about staying private from everyone in the present plus anyone in the future that you might want privacy from. Keeping data from leaking into the blockchain is extremely important. Yeah, because once you do leak that data, there's no <laughs> ability to take it back, like you said. So why not err on the side of privacy? Right. It's about thinking about the future and your future privacy needs. I think that's a really good point you just made, Justice, which is not only the tools for data analysis on the blockchain getting better, but we also don't know what's going to happen in the future. Like, for example, when the MTGOX database was leaked, what that meant was that all of the transactions that previously had a level of obfuscation on them could now be linked to specific database accounts. There are so many exchanges today that do a lot of their transactions on hot wallets or off-blockchain transactions, but all of these can be essentially de-obfuscated in the future if one of these databases leaks. So even things that may today be more or less private, that privacy may be eroded in the future, not just by improvements in data analysis, but also by leaks of private data. Justice, it seems from the uh, layout of the report that the primary value of this is not to provide an absolute metric of privacy, but more so a time stamp or snapshot in time ranking of relative privacy between all of these choices. So if you're a consumer and you're looking at all of these wallets, you, you, you can't really use this report to say, okay, this wallet is X percent private, but you can use it to say this wallet is slightly better at handling these threats than this other wallet. So it's the relative ranking as a snapshot in time, which is most important. Is, is that correct? You know, there are a lot of wallets that score badly on privacy, but they have other compensating benefits. There's definitely a trade-off, and it, it will never be fully unavoidable between convenience and privacy. And that's fine. People should be free to choose the degree of privacy they want versus the degree of convenience. But in order for them to make an informed choice, they need accurate information about how much privacy they're giving up. And so the relative aspect of the ratings is helpful in that sense. Justice, I noticed the, the list, uh, I think it was about a dozen wallets included. There's probably about three dozen mobile wallets I know of, and probably another couple of dozen web wallets. What was the process by which you decided which wallets to include in this report? And do you expect to include more wallets or different wallets in future versions of this report? Yeah, um, we wanted to include as many wallets as possible. The Ultimately, we're limited by the amount of volunteer manpower we had. So we had to prioritize the wallets. The first thing we did is we started from the, the list of wallets that are on Bitcoin.org. Initial goal was to get all of those. We didn't quite make it. We started with that list. We wanted some diversity in the types of wallets listed. Dark Wallet was included because at the time it was the only wallet specifically advertised 
the privacy wallet. We included the Coinbase wallet because it is an example of a, a hosted style wallet. If we would have had more time, volunteers, we would have done more. We would have included Circle and some other wallets. We would have tried to get some multi-sig wallets, but we didn't have the time to do that. So it was based on what did we have volunteers, what did they want to do, and how could we get a good mix? In the future, we will definitely include more. Now that we've got a framework set up about how, how to do ratings, we can devote more of our time to rating wallets and less time figuring out how to rate wallets. Also in July, we plan to do a recruiting drive to help gather more volunteers so that we can get coverage. So Justice, I'm wondering if you would be willing to just kind of hit the highlights and talk about the best and the worst. Dark Wallet came out on top, which wasn't a particular surprise because it was designed to maximize privacy. It did well because of automatic mixing support, as well as general good practices across the board in terms of address handling. I should note that Armory scored almost as well as Dark Wallet because, as it turns out, Armory uses a full node instead of obtaining its balance information from an external source, uh, eliminates a very large number of attacks. Blockchain and Coinbase were at the bottom, which, again, that wasn't a particular surprise. Coinbase, as a hosted wallet, has full control over the user's private keys and can link every transaction to the identified user. You have extremely little privacy from them. The blockchain.info wallet scored low primarily because it has not yet upgraded to the HD wallet style. It very strongly encourages address reuse, and that caused it to suffer you know, in quite a bit of our tests. I'm kind of curious what the reaction was from some of the wallets that you rated. Like, did you get hostility, welcoming? We haven't received any hostility. Like, the, the only complaint we've received so far is that we didn't rate enough wallets. So we're taking that as a pretty good sign. Several of the wallets that were rated reached out to us. Some of them had questions about particular criteria and their motivations. And so we've had conversations to help explain that, which we will also turn around and use that feedback to make the criteria more clear in the future. I've had several different conversations about how wallet, what wallets can do to improve their score. And we're also starting to see some more interest in improving the rating system itself. The open in Open Bitcoin Privacy Project stands for the fact that anyone can participate. Our source data and our methodology are on a public GitHub repository where we accept feedback and are already starting to work on the next round of ratings and their criteria. It strikes me looking at these results that of the 10 wallets in total that you rated with the project, even though nothing scored higher than 60, there are six here, the top six, all scored within 10 points of each other from 54 points down to 45. You know, you mentioned that the two high scoring ones, Dark Wallet and Armory, scored basically the same, but they had different ways that they achieved it. Uh, Dark Wallet through mixing and Armory by having a full node and neither, you know, Armory doesn't mix and uh, Dark Wallet doesn't have a full node. Did, was that kind of uh, consistent through this is that people were just simply picking different things to focus on? And do you think that, that, that we should have these kind of everything integrated into one wallet or is this type of approach what you think is going to just happen over time? I think the largest amount of clustering we saw was HD versus non-HD. 
the highest weighted question is the privacy on the blockchain and an HD architecture that's well implemented is the best way to achieve that. So that's kind of why we saw this split between highly rated and, and low rated. In the future, do you think we're going to see wallets adopting simply across the board, literally everything that they can implement? Or is it too much? Is adding a full node and mixing into the same thing? Are those things that are kind of incompatible to the other? Is there a reason basically why people have made the choices that they have so far to take on some of these privacy things that they think are important, but not to do other things that obviously you value here? The thing about privacy is it's a lot like security in that the attack will always go for the weakest link. So in order to achieve a level of privacy, you have to protect the entire boundary. So in that sense, wallets will have to, if they want to offer their users privacy, they'll have to adopt a holistic approach to privacy and try to cover every angle. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that we'll do it the same way. Specifically with regards to uh, being a full node, it's not possible for all the wallets in the world to be full nodes that want to work on mobile and light platforms will have to find other ways to achieve equivalent levels of privacy. Justice, I have to congratulate you and your team. I think this is not only a a very well-written report, well-researched, fair and objective, but it's also an extremely important service for the community and uh, can have a real impact on privacy. So thank you so much for doing this. For our listeners, where can they uh, read this report? How can they get involved and volunteer in this project? And what can we expect to see in the future for this Open Privacy Project? Our website is at openbitcoinprivacyproject.org. And if they go there, they'll find links to the report and they'll find our contact information so that they can get involved. The report was professionally produced by BTC Design. Having a professional is not free. So if anyone would like to donate to help the cost of the production of the report, we have donation information on our website as well. We do have a couple of Google Groups email lists, also weekly Google Hangouts, so that everybody who's involved can join the Hangout and participate. During the upcoming months, we will be rolling right into producing the next report. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Justice, Stephanie, Andreas, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. The magic word for episode 224 is horse. That's H-O-R-S-E. Horse. You've got until around 10 a.m. Pacific time on the 30th of June to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Have a good one.